Welcome to the Dan Cave. Here's your host, Dan Viennes. Episode 3 of the Dan Cave today. My thoughts on what we're seeing at Seahawks camp this week, including my observations from Sunday's full pad workout, and already an intriguing addition to the offensive line. We'll talk about Earl Thomas's Players' Tribune article this morning. Did he guarantee that he'll never play another snap for the Seahawks? And then we'll take the pulse of Mariner fans as we prepare for a true playoff push, which begins in earnest tonight against the Toronto Blue Jays. All that and more coming right up. Welcome back to the Dan Cave. I certainly appreciate your support. Got some cool news this week. Um, I've been approved on Apple Podcast. On their app, you can get it through iTunes or download the podcast app. So I'm now on Spotify, Apple, and all the other major podcasting platforms, whichever one you use. So if you're listening to this through the Anchor app, because that's how I sent the link out, if it's easier for you to listen through Spotify or Apple and subscribe, it's free. You can now do that and uh, would love for you to follow me. So... Lots to talk about today, Seahawks and Mariners. We're going to start with the Seahawks. They're a full week into training camp now, and a week from tonight, they're going to be strapping it on and playing a preseason game against the Colts at home. And and that's where we really start to see some of these position battles take place. It's hard to gauge sometimes exactly what's happening at practice, but did get out to training camp this week on Sunday, the first full pad practice. For, um, for what that's worth in this day and age of padded practice, and I'm holding up air quotes right now. Uh, a couple of my quick observations. The, uh, the way that Brian Schottenheimer's coaching style was described when he was hired as the new offensive coordinator was spot on. He is incredibly engaged, really energetic. He's involved in every single place, jumping around, grabbing players by their shoulder pads, moving them around. Didn't see that from Daryl Bevel. Daryl Bevel spent a lot of time with his arms folded and his play sheet tucked under his arm. He observed practice. Didn't see a lot of hands-on coaching. Um, part of that might have been by design, where the Seahawks used to have the offensive coordinator position basically split between Daryl Bevel and Tom Cable, and, and Cable ran the run game. He was a more hands-on practice coach, and maybe that, that was just a reflection of their personalities, or maybe that was the way that they wanted to carry it out, and then Bevel handled most of the meeting room stuff. Um, but that's exactly why Pete Carroll said was uh, one of the reasons he cited it anyway as to why they made the change, that they've consolidated those duties Brian Schottenheimer has all the power and control over the offense now, and and he's much more involved and engaged. So that was pretty cool to watch. Um, very, very interesting as, as the practice unfolded. Same with Ken Norton Jr. He was a real dominating presence on the practice field, grabbing guys after drills, correcting them, just small little techniques and things like that. The players really seem to love him, and he's known as a great teacher. And with all the young guys on this on this defense, um, you can see now why Pete Carroll wanted to get him back in the program. So, saw lots of changes and and different combinations, especially at the safety spot. Maurice Alexander wasn't out there yet; he didn't show up until yesterday. He was still dealing with a nagging uh, um, recovery from an injury. 
uh, and he might likely get first crack at being the strong safety. He's the one guy on the roster that comes close to replicating from a physical standpoint what Cam Chancellor was, 6'2", 220, uh, playing up close to the line of scrimmage and, and really hitting guys. So that may be sort of the default veteran um, safety combination that we see opening week is Maurice Alexander, if he plays well in preseason, and uh, at strong safety, and Bradley McDougald at free safety. What I saw out there on Sunday was a lot of McDougald at strong and Tedrick Thompson at free safety. Um, and then we saw some Delano Hill and Tedrick Thompson at the same time as well. And actually a lot of Mike Tyson playing free safety too. If you remember, Tyson was drafted in the sixth round last year out of Cincinnati, had played safety. They tried converting him to, to cornerback, but now he's back playing safety, his more natural position. And, and his athletic profile is really intriguing. And, and in, in some ways, athletically maybe uh, presents a little bit more upside even than Thompson does. Um, but either way, he was going to be on the bubble as a corner. So he might have a better chance to contribute as a safety. And even if he doesn't make the roster, he's a long shot to make the roster. Um, might look like a, a practice squad guy, but it'll be... It'll be interesting to see how he does uh, in preseason games. Um, hard to judge the linemen, even with pads on, because they're not really hitting 100%. But I did see one thing, and it was pointed out again uh, yesterday, I believe by Greg Bell of the News Tribune, that Mike Solari worked a lot with combination drills, with two offensive linemen working against two defensive linemen running twists and stunts, and that's something Tom Cable never did. He really focused on the one-on-one stuff, and then obviously the team stuff. And so uh, that was certainly an area where this line has struggled the last couple of years is dealing with stunts. Um, and teams like the the Los Angeles Rams would would run throw a lot of stunts at us for that reason, not just because of their talent they have up front. But um, Mike Solari comes with a reputation as a teacher and a technician more so than Tom Cable did. And so we'll see if that pays off. I was really looking to see what Brandon Marshall looked like. Um, He's still not participating in the full team, full speed practice part of the session, but he did all the individual drills and he did some of the skeleton stuff in the seven on seven. Um, He looked to me like he was running well, coming off foot and ankle surgeries. Um, He looked healthy to me, Uh, was cutting hard, didn't seem limited in any way. And he... This could be key for this team. As much as there's a bunch of young guys playing receiver and you'd like to see some of those guys step up, certainly a healthy Brandon Marshall, a healthy and motivated Brandon Marshall who's playing on a minimum contract at the age of 34 and wants to prove he still can contribute can really be a presence in this offense. Six foot four can help in the red zone. He really stands out physically and caught the ball well. Um... Wouldn't expect him to play in the first preseason game because he's coming off of surgery. The team hasn't really committed one way or the other, but um, but we'll see what he can do. We'll see what he can do. With him specifically, the new rule that, that there's just the one cut from 90 to 53 instead of the middle cut to 75 may really help a guy like Brandon Marshall who can uh, kind of wait until late in the preseason to, to try to make his mark. One thing that also really was evident 
in this training camp is uh, you've heard that the fullback is going to be back. It's definitely back. We know that Brian Schottenheimer likes to use a fullback. He is one of those rare kind of offensive coordinators in this day and age that believes in the fullback and the eye formation, ran a ton of it, uh, both in his stints as the Jets offensive coordinator and with the Rams, and in his one year at the University of Georgia. If you YouTube Georgia versus Alabama in his one year there, which I think was 2015, um, when he had Sonny Michelle and he still had Nick Chubb, and, and they ran a ton of eye formation, uh, even on first down, uh, even on third and long. He's, he's said in the press he's committed to the run, regardless of whether the other team is expecting it, regardless of down and distance, and it sure looks that way. Lots of drills with the fullbacks, lots of throwing the football to the running backs and the fullbacks, and they can all catch the ball well. Clearly that was something that the Seahawks prioritized when they signed tailbacks and fullbacks this offseason. I told you in the last episode I would point out uh, the three players who I thought really jumped out from Sunday's practice that I attended and the three who didn't. Um, Doesn't necessarily mean that the three who jumped out have any kind of advantage over anybody else or that the three who didn't don't it's just you know it's so much harder to watch practice now at training camp because of how crowded it is um and and so rather than try to watch everything it's a little unrealistic unless you have a press pass and you can be on the field it's a little unrealistic to say okay i'm I'm gonna check out all of the position groups and try to make observations on all key players. So I just tried to have an open mind and and just kind of let practice develop and see what naturally stood out. Tyler Lockett was the first guy that jumped out to me. He says he's 100% healthy now from that broken leg two years ago that he played at about 80 to 85% last year, even though he did some good things on the field. He looked explosive again. He looked fast again. And that's key because one other thing that we've, we saw Sunday at practice and then we got confirmation of it from Pete Carroll yesterday is Doug Baldwin is dealing with a knee issue and may miss the entire preseason. Hopefully he'll be ready to go. It doesn't sound like it was a surgical issue, but let's hope it doesn't lead to that and they take care of this thing. Uh, and then he's ready to go by the opener. He hasn't missed a regular season game yet since he's been a Seahawk. So Tyler Lockett, in the last year of his contract, it would behoove him to be productive, and he certainly looked physically ready for that challenge on Sunday. Michael Dixon, we've heard all about the punter that they traded up to get in the fifth round out of the University of Texas, how unique he is with the Australian rules football background. He is a talent, uh, and he makes it look easy. I saw John Ryan kick the crud out of the ball on a fairly consistent basis, had a couple of bad kicks, but he looked like a guy fighting for his job. After those bad kicks, you could really see him getting on himself. John Ryan has a prettier spiral, kicks the ball more traditionally, straight leg, pointed toe. Michael Dixon has that bent leg, but he looks like a guy who's out practicing his chip shots around the greens on the golf course. Very easy style. Didn't see. So John Ryan was the first guy in the practice field. And Michael Dixon was the second one on the practice field. And I didn't see him say a word to each other. So that relationship may be a little chilly. Um, 
but John Ryan knows he's in he's in the fight of his career um, to keep his roster spot. But Dixon kicked one ball 75 yards in the air, kicked it into another drill that was happening beyond the special teams 11 on 11. Um, but looked like he was working more on placement, that he didn't feel like he needed to prove he could kick it 75 yards every time, whereas John Ryan really looked like he was trying to show that he still has a, a lot of leg left. So we'll see how that one goes, and it'll be interesting to see if, if the Seahawks determine early in camp that Dixon's going to be the guy, and I would suspect that's the case. Let's see if they release Ryan early in camp to give him uh, more of a chance to catch on with another team. The other thing that I that I like to watch, I always watch the quarterbacks. It's, I guess I just consider myself a quarterback guy. I mostly played quarterback when I was younger. I've hung out with quarterbacks. I guess I've spent more time around quarterbacks. My college roommate was a first-round draft pick in the NFL. I've always been intrigued by the position and, and tried to scout it. Haven't always been that great in my evaluations. I've had arguments and I've pounded the table for guys in the past that have not turned out to be very good, but I've also hit on a few guys too. I was very high on Russell Wilson coming out and loved that pick. Um, but I also thought that Ryan Leaf had more upside than Peyton Manning and was going to be a better NFL quarterback. So at least I'm not the only one that got that wrong. But what I like to try to do with quarterbacks is imagine if you were watching practice and you didn't know anything about the players. Austin Davis, Alex Magoo, Russell Wilson. You knew enough about the quarterback position to be able to see who looks like they're skilled but you don't know anything about the depth chart. And and when I covered sports and covered a lot of high school sports in the Tri-Cities and also in North Dakota, that's the way I always like to approach uh, the first time that I'd go watch a high school team practice or in pregame warm-ups uh, if I got there early enough when a couple of teams were playing. I like to try and just guess who the starting quarterback is just based on how good he looks, his mechanics and how he's throwing the ball, his release, and how he carries himself. If you did that on Sunday at Seahawks camp, and you didn't know anything, and you didn't even know who Russell Wilson was, just because of his physical stature, you might think Alex Magoo was the starting quarterback. Physically, he looks really, really good. He's a thinner guy, but he looks well put together. Moves extremely well. Uh, well, both Austin Davis and Magoo have a quicker release than Russell Wilson. It's no secret that Wilson's got that long windup. But Magoo's is even quicker than Davis. Davis has a stronger arm and was more accurate, at least on Sunday, to me. So the battle for the backup quarterback position, because I doubt the Seahawks will carry three, is maybe one of the more intriguing storylines in camp. And I tend to think the edge might go to Magoo as a developmental prospect who could either A, be developed into a guy who could start someday if, heaven forbid, Russell Wilson gets injured or contract negotiations in the next year or two don't go well, or B, could develop into the kind of asset that Jimmy Garoppolo did for the New England Patriots where he becomes a guy that's desirable to other teams and could result in, in getting decent draft pick compensation back in return. So we'll, we'll keep an eye on that. Three guys who did not stand out. I don't know what's going on with Nick Vanette. Loved him coming out of Ohio State. 
in the third round a couple years ago. Thought he was a complete tight end, caught the ball well, ran good routes, had the good size, athletic profile was good enough, and had a reputation at the time of, of being an outstanding blocker. Um, that reputation seems to have waned. People talk about him as a guy who can't block now, and he had some drops last year when he got an opportunity in games. And it wasn't so much that he didn't do anything in the practice Sunday. It just looks like Will Disley is ahead of him. Um, the fourth-round pick out of UW this year, who, again, has a reputation. It's been called the best blocker in the draft uh, with a lot of upside as a pass catcher. It just looks like, or it did on Sunday anyway, in a small sample size, like Disley is getting a lot of run. Uh, at one point, Wilson threw a seam route to him that he dropped, and then he came right back to him on the next play and ran the same route to him, and he caught it uh, and, and looked really natural doing so. Um, so we'll see. I, I think he's going to make the team anyway. I think the Seahawks are intent on keeping three tight ends because tight ends are a huge part of Brian Schottenheimer's offense. He'll run a lot of two tight end sets. So you're going to have three on the roster. The only guy that, that may have a chance to beat Vanette out uh, would be Swoops, but he's a converted tight end in his second year practice squad guy from last year. So he still probably has a, a chance to make the team. But it, it looks like Disley has a has an opportunity to open the season as the number two tight end. Jaron Brown is another guy who didn't look impressive to me at all. Signed a two-year free agent deal from the Arizona Cardinals, had some guaranteed money in it. He's billed as an outstanding special teams player. But just as far as the receivers go, he wasn't more impressive than Marcus Johnson, the the player we got in the Michael Bennett deal. Um... Even uh, Demore Stringfellow, um, the street free agent, uh, looked better than he did. It, it He just didn't jump out in any of the drills or in the red zone drill. Uh, Johnson caught an a impressive touchdown from Russell Wilson in the red zone drills. Didn't see Brown do much. Um, maybe he's going to be on the roster simply because of his uh, ability as a gunner on kick teams, but uh, Amara Darbo had a, an outstanding practice yesterday, made some impressive catches. He's a third-round pick from two years ago that needs to prove himself, so there's some battles there, and I don't know that the Seahawks roster is going to be um, able to carry a sixth receiver simply because of his special teams abilities, so Jaron Brown may have an uphill battle, but he may have just had a quiet day too, so... Uh, the other guy's Mike Davis. I think he's in for an uphill battle. He had to be the guy last year because of injuries at running back. Um, and he did some good things, but with Chris Carson uh, healthy and looking like a beast and Rashard Penny being a first-round draft pick and those that two-headed monster being the one-two punch. And then J.D. McKissick looked really good and was getting reps ahead of Mike Davis on Sunday. And C.J. Proceis, knock on wood. Hasn't gotten hurt yet. We're a week into camp. That's a miracle. If he's healthy, he looks like the guy in drills who was getting uh, first shot at the third uh, the third down uh, spot. And with the Seahawks' intent on using a fullback, one of those fullbacks is going to make the roster. So Mike Davis may be a guy who uh, ends up being an odd man out. He didn't look better than any of those other running backs um, on Sunday. My other impressions, Russell Wilson looked extremely comfortable. For a guy learning a new offense, and even though Brian Schottenheimer has said 
that he retained about 70% of what the Seahawks were doing before and then added the other 30% and tried to change his terminology to match what they've done. Wilson looked really in command. Uh, threw one pick in the 11-on-11, threw a ball into double coverage, tried to hit um, a free agent wide receiver who's five foot nine. Um, and Tedrick Thompson made a nice play and intercepted it. But he looked accurate. He was getting rid of the ball quickly. He looked like he was in command. Um, it was really good to see. And uh, the kicking battle may be a battle more so than people expected it to be. The Seahawks signed Jason Myers just after the season ended last year to a futures contract. Former Jacksonville Jaguar, has never kicked a full season, has some injury issues. And then Sebastian Janikowski, the longtime kicker of the Oakland Raiders, signed as a free agent, only guaranteed $600,000. And he was out of minicamp with a with a slight injury issue, but he looked healthy. So they, they were both kicking, and Myers kicked the ball as well as Janikowski in the practice I saw. Showed off a lot of leg. He's a lot younger. He'd be cheaper. That's going to be one to watch. It's the first time in a long time the Seahawks have had kicker battles, and they have one at punter and kicker in this preseason. So um, we'll see how Jason Myers does. The offensive line, a lot is being expected of that offensive line. It's no secret that there are still people out there, and I'm going to focus on that more in our next episode. I'm going to call out some of the national guys by name and uh, some of the things that they've been saying about the Seahawks offensive line. And (laughs) I'll just touch on it. I'll I'll give you a preview. Here's a Reader's Digest version. Is the idea that because the Seahawks didn't add a whole bunch of new draft picks to the offensive line that they failed in trying to fix it this offseason. As if the way to fix an offensive line is to put a whole bunch of new, inexperienced rookies in there. That's that's, that's going to fix it. What have we been reading and hearing the experts say for the last three or four years? As being the leading cause of poor offensive line play in the NFL. There's really two reasons that people cite. One is the lack of contact in practice now, which makes it hard to teach. And two is what the the colleges are doing and the offenses they're running and the spread and the wide splits and throwing the ball 70% of the time. So these guys are coming out of college and having to be completely retrained from scratch. Also, we've had two drafts in a row that have widely been regarded as poor offensive line drafts lacking in elite talent. And the Seahawks have been a playoff team, and so they've been drafting near the bottom of the rounds. So when a guy like Jeff Schwartz, who played in the league for 10 years, and now he's an analyst, just continues to rip the Seahawks over and over and over for not drafting more offensive linemen. He's ignoring the fact that the Seahawks have spent more draft capital in the last three years on the offensive line position than any team in the NFL. He's ignoring the fact that they traded two draft picks to get Dwayne Brown last year, the perennial pro bowler, and just signed him to a contract extension. So for the first time since Russell Okung was in his prime and healthy, which we're talking four or five years ago now, we have an an excellent left tackle. 
He's ignoring the fact that our center is near Pro Bowl caliber, Justin Britt, in the prime of his career. He's ignoring the fact that we spent a first-round draft pick on a right tackle two years ago, a second-round draft pick on a left guard two years ago, or last year, a third-round pick on a swing guard and tackle, Rizzo Diambo, just three years ago, that we signed in free agency last year, DJ Fluker, who only four years ago was his first-round draft pick. This will be the first time since the Seahawks really let Max Unger go. And that was kind of the beginning of this real struggle up front for them. That there's been some continuity. That the entire line comes back with the exception of Fluker essentially subbing in for Luke Jokel. And they're also changing the system with a new offensive line coach. Going from the zone system, which is harder to coach, to more of a power system, one-on-one man blocking, which may suit the personnel better. So it just baffles me how people think that the, the way to fix this poor offensive line would be to just give up on all the development of those draft picks over the last three years. Just move on from all of that and draft new players. So I like the direction they're taking. But they did something today that um, that I really like. Pete Carroll has sort of dusted off the whole competition mantra this year. And it seems like they're putting their, their money where their mouth is for the first time uh, in a while. They signed J.R. Sweezy today. And we all know that J.R. Sweezy was drafted by the Seahawks. We know the story. Seventh round draft pick. Defensive tackle at North Carolina State. Tom Cable's prize project made him into an offensive guard and he became good enough at it that he signed a big, huge free agent contract two years ago with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And then all he did in Tampa Bay is get hurt. Back surgery, had a leg injury last year, so the Buccaneers released him. He's still just 29 years old. I haven't seen contract details, but I'm sure it's a minimum deal. He visited VMAC a month ago, took his physicals and whatnot. But I think the Seahawks wanted to see what they what they had. And I don't know if it's too early to give up on Fluker. Uh, there's indications he's been he's been limited in some practices, so he may be dealing with um, somewhat of an injury. But I think it was just insurance. Here's a guy who had made himself into a really, really good guard. There were some questions about his pass-blocking ability, but there's questions about any offensive lineman who's ever played for Tom Cable as a pass-blocker. But there's no question he's a masher in the run game. He's still in the athletic prime of his career. And again, you're getting a player now that's motivated to prove himself again, which is kind of a theme of this offseason for the acquisitions the Seahawks have made. So we'll see. We'll see what Sweezy has played some left guard as well. And so that could really give him a swing guy. The DJ Fluker deal was just a one-year deal, and I'm not sure what the guarantees were, but I think they were minimal. They could, If they feel like Sweezy's a major upgrade over Fluker, they could cut him. Um, it could also be that Sweezy is in competition with Reese Odiambo. 
uh, as a swing guard, although Odiambo can play tackle and is healthy now after, after being hurt last year. So um, love, the, love the acquisition, the addition, and we'll see who wins that battle. All right, I said last week that I didn't want to have to talk about Earl Thomas until he was either A, traded, or B, on the field. But I have to. Today, Earl Thomas went to the Players' Tribune. Playerstribune.com where it's a website where athletes get to write things in their own in their own voice. And in a piece entitled What's Really Going On, he reiterated that his stance is that he either wants an extension or a trade, and he won't report to camp or report to the Seahawks until he gets one or the other. And here's the reason why. According to him... We are, all the speculation has been that it was simply over money and that he wanted to be the highest paid safety in the league. But according to him, even though he said he loves Seattle and understands if they want to move on because they want to rebuild and play young players, he says it's because he wants financial protection against a devastating injury. He says, quote, if you're risking your body to the to deliver all of this value to an organization, then you deserve some sort of assurance that the organization will take care of you if you get hurt. It's that simple. So essentially, he wants what Cam Chancellor got in his last contract. He wants an extension, and he wants it to be at the top of the safety scale, and he wants it to be guaranteed for injury. How'd that work out for the Seahawks and Cam Chancellor? Cam signed a new deal, and then in the first year of the extension, went out, suffered a neck injury, can't play football anymore, and the Seahawks are on the hook, and their salary cap has to absorb two years of Cam Chancellor's salary, even though he'll never play another down for the team. This isn't going to be a common thing in the NFL. Teams aren't going to be willing to just hand out injury settlement, especially when they see what happened with Chancellor and the Seahawks. So here's, here's the problem with what Earl Thomas is saying. And I'm, I'm not one of those guys that's... A lot of fans are just always on the side of the team. These guys get paid millions of dollars. They, they're idolized by millions. They should just play for whatever because I would play for half of what they make if I could make a living that way. That's, I'm, I'm not one of those guys. I Get your money but also understand how it works. First of all, Earl, if you want more injury protection as a player, then talk to your union. This is why I think we're going to miss an entire football season. And I believe uh, the current CBA is up after next year, after 2019. So I think we'll miss the 2020 season. I think the players are really going to dig in and not give in on things like this, and we're going to miss a whole season out of it. Um, But they gave in during the last negotiations. They caved. So they didn't get the kind of long-term insurance protections that they wanted. But here's what else I'll say. That's what your contract is. 
You want some sort of, quote, assurance that the organization will take care of you if you get hurt? Earl Thomas has a career earnings total of almost $51 million. I would never wish any kind of a devastating injury on any player, and it's terrible that Cam Chancellor can never play football again. And, and, and God forbid he should have any kind of long-term complications because of his neck injury. And we know all about the concussion thing. But take care of your money and protect yourself. You've made $51 million. Make sure you're taken care of. You're an elite player. Take care of your money. Here's the other problem with what Earl is saying. Because again, he's just saying, I will not report without a new contract. And if they don't want to give me a new contract, trade me to a team that sees me as a part of their long-term future and wants to commit to me. If he thinks any other team is going to step up and A, give Seattle what they want in trade, and B, give you those injury guarantees that you want, then you're really, really missing the point. That's not going to happen. Is Dallas dumb enough to do that? They'll pay you. Dallas wants him. If Seattle lowers their asking price enough, Dallas will make the move. But they're not going to give you fully guaranteed salaries against injury for the remainder of your career. They're just not. As an undersized safety who throws his body around and is about to turn 30 years old, it's not going to happen. So here's how this is going to play out. And I just hope it doesn't get too ugly before it does. He has to play 10 games for the season to accrue this year. If he sits out the entire year, he's shooting himself in the foot. He's almost forcing himself into retirement. Because the season then doesn't accrue towards service time. So he won't be a free agent. He'll still have a year left on his deal with Seattle. And he'll cost himself... Uh, what is his contract this year? His base salary is $8.5 million. So he would also not get that, which I don't know, could go towards ensuring that you're taken care of if you get hurt. So I, I think it's silly. I think what's going to happen, Seahawks are going to stand firm, 100%. Got my season tickets yesterday. None of them have Earl Thomas's picture on them. He's clearly not in the plans. He's done. He's done as a Seahawk. I think he's going to sit out the six games, and then there's going to be things are going to come to a head. And at that point, a lot of it might depend on how the season's going for the Seahawks. If they allow him to report, knowing he could be a distraction. The Seahawks start off one and five. Things are going poorly. Defense is getting shredded. Maybe they let him come back just from for competitive reasons, but I doubt it. I think then at that point, they'll just take whatever they can get in trade. Because they, they aren't going to want him in that locker room. Okay, let's talk about the Mariners uh, before we wrap this up. So here we are. The playoff, the playoff race officially starts today because the Mariners are tied with the Oakland A's. The A's have been coming up on our heels for the last couple of weeks. And here's the thing that I'll say. And I've been one of them. People have been saying for weeks, the A's aren't that good. They're just hot. 
Don't worry. They'll cool off. The Mariners will find their, their mojo again and go on another run like they did in June. Can't say that anymore. The A's have won 30 of their last 40 games. You don't do that unless you're a good baseball team. So, <laughs> they're not going anywhere. The Mariners need to get it together quickly. This Houston Astros series felt like such a big one. I said it was the biggest series they played in four years at home. Went to the game on Monday. Had all the makings of, an, uh, of a massive series. James Paxton pitched like an ace. And if you follow me on Twitter, you know that I have not felt that James Paxton deserved to be called an ace. But he pitched like one on Monday coming back from injury, outdueled Garrett Cole, 2 nothing win for the Mariners. Nice Monday night crowd, 35,000. It was it was a great start to the homestand. And then they got bombed on Tuesday and bombed yesterday. With the bullpen not performing well on Tuesday and Wade LeBlanc getting knocked around yesterday. So Jerry Depoto goes out and adds three bullpen arms instead of a starting pitcher because he said the market wasn't what he wanted so he'd, he would lengthen the bullpen. I wonder if he's regretting that already now given that LeBlanc had such a bad outing. Of the three relievers that we got, uh, Sam Tuivalala pitched well in his Mariner debut. Adam Warren pitched well yesterday. Zach Duke gave up a two-run home run on Tuesday uh, which didn't cost the Mariners the game. It was 3-2 to two at that point. It made it 5-2, to two, uh, but it made coming back more difficult. The problem the Mariners ran into against the Astros is their bench. And it was really the difference in the series. The Astros were without Jose Altuve and Carlos Correa for the entire series. Their two best players. George Springer, their third best player, got hurt in Tuesday's game, didn't play Wednesday. Their bench killed us. Our bench was AAA quality at best. When Andrew Romine has to play every day because Kyle Seeger is on paternity leave, don't get me started on that, it's, and you have to call up a a triple A utility player. It's it it makes it really really difficult to beat a good team when your bench is as weak as the Mariners is. They're weak at backup catcher. They're weak at utility infielder. They don't have anyone that can play third baseman every day if Seager were to get hurt. Which makes the report yesterday out of the Dominican Republic from John Heyman even more intriguing. Apparently, we all expected Robinson Cano to be working out at first base. But he's also back home preparing for his return, working out at third base as well. Which would really give the Mariners some interesting options. Uh, especially if, if when Kyle Seeger comes back tonight against Toronto, he continues to struggle. Not that Cano would become the third baseman, but there would be certain matchups where to put your best offensive lineup on the field might include needing Ryan Healy in the lineup as well as Robinson Cano 
as well as Nelson Cruz, which would give you that opportunity. Felix Hernandez pitches tonight against Toronto. And Scott Service and Jerry DePoto have both come out in the last couple of days and essentially said, we're judging Felix one start at a time now. He needs to pitch well Thursday. I wonder, I hope I'm wrong, but I wonder if the reason they gave him one more home start is so they could do one more Kings Court. Kings Court needs to go away. And if Felix pitches poorly tonight, then they're forced into a decision. And the decision becomes trickier now because of all the acquisitions they made this week. If we had three relievers to the group, And they, they sent some guys down to make room. But if if Felix gets bombed tonight against Toronto, then unless you can come up with a reason to say there's an injury worthy of, of, of giving him a DL spot, because I don't believe you can just do that. I, I do think you still have to show that there's some legitimate injury. You can't just use the DL to hide players. If the idea is to move him into the bullpen and try and let him work on some of his issues, then then who goes out? Does Elias go out? Maybe that's the easy choice. Send him down to Tacoma, stretch him back out again as a starter. Or does Elias then take his spot in the rotation? In which case, it's a straight swap. Um, Erasmo Ramirez started again uh, in double-A the other night. Doesn't look like he's quite stretched out to where he can go 100 pitches. But we're going to know a lot more about what the starting rotation looks like after tonight's game uh, against the Toronto Blue Jays. So a lot on the line. Um, two months left, and you're tied for the last for the last wild card spot. This we wanted a playoff race. We got a playoff race, um, and it it really does come down to the Oakland A's or the Seattle Mariners for that last wild card spot. Both teams are six games behind the Yankees, who have added a lot of reinforcements at the deadline. I don't think either team's going to catch the Yankees. But they both have a an eight-game lead on Tampa Bay, too. So it's it's the Mariners or the A's. Um, they, play each, they play each other a ton in uh, the rest of the way, and so those are going to be some big series. So... That's what we got to look forward to. Uh, next week on the Dan Cave, we'll look back at the uh, weekend for the Mariners and, and reassess where they're at. Um, and we'll take a look at some more of those spring training or uh, training camp battles with the Seahawks and get ready for the preseason game against the Indianapolis Colts. Again, please subscribe at either through the Anchor app or Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Appreciate you listening to the Dan Cave, and we'll see you next week.